Good evening, everyone. This is Reverend Michael Watson for our second podcast. We started last Thursday night with an introductory episode, and tonight I want to introduce you a little bit more to what this podcast will be about. I have been in contact with several people whose stories I would love for you to hear, and they've agreed to come on the show and um, and sit with me and talk about things in their life that that talk about renewal and hope, that tell them about renewal and hope, and tell them about how their lives can be filled with renewal and also can create hope for others. So tonight what I wanted to do was tell you a little bit about my story and how I started on this journey that I'm on right now um, and and why I'm doing this podcast called Renewal and Hope and why I'm writing a book called Renewal and Hope. I hope that um, the podcast is something that interests you and I hope that the stories of those who come on this podcast will interest you as well. So before we actually launch into some of the stories of other people's lives, what I thought I would do is just begin by telling you something that I deeply believe in, and that is that all of the great spiritual leaders in our history were people of hope. The nature of having that hope is that it lightens our load when we have it, no matter how oppressed or discontented life's circumstances are with us or with those around us, and no matter where we are in life. So don't we all believe that our loves and our lives have meaning? that we all want to share that meaning with others. If any of us loses that want, then we are gaining nothing by living our lives every day. That's a sad commentary on those kinds of lives, but we see those kinds of lives around us much more frequently than we would like. I believe that giving hope to others creates hope for all of us, creates it for ourselves. And I believe that's a universal truth no matter what our religion is, and even whether we care about the concept of having a religion. There is great value in believing in renewal and hope, even for those who believe there is no God. So hope is not necessarily determined for you by whether you believe in a supreme being. I have my own beliefs about whether there is a supreme being, as you might imagine, since I'm an Episcopal priest. But your life is built around renewal and hope and cycles of renewal and hope. So I I think that I would like to tell you just a little bit about my journey to help you understand why I believe that. And for those of you who um, are hearing this for the first time, I've I've told my stories to others in the past. I would like for you to understand that my mission here is sort of my attempt not to convince you of something, but instead so that I can get you to feel and recognize and discover something about yourself that is really already within you and to be able to open yourself to a new and different concept. And that something and that concept are all about this no matter where you are in your life's journey, you can create joy for yourself by creating hope 
for those less fortunate than you. And that's, that's what I'm going to be talking with all of these people that I'm going to be interviewing uh, on this show about. As you do that, your own life will be renewed. It will be shed of the effects of disappointment within yourself and others around you. Are you perhaps looking for the elevated joy of your life in something new? Are you perhaps looking for some joy in what you already do in your life and with your life? If that is you, then you have come to the right place. So if I tell you a short bit about my journey, maybe you can find some similarities with your journey. And I want to begin by telling you how the storms of my life, and I mean real storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, thunderstorms, have shaped what I have become. I spent most of my life, my adult life, after graduating from college and law school, becoming what I deemed to be the most successful trial lawyer that I could become. Most everything I did, beginning in the mid-70s, centered around that. But after many, many years, something was missing. Success, as defined by the way most people defined it, was not the problem. I had earned awards, gotten great big verdicts and settlements as a trial lawyer and had most of the finest things money could buy. I even got a prestigious position as a law school professor and wrote and published law books. But deep down inside, I was looking for a way out. Well, one day in the spring of 2000, as I was driving home from work around five o'clock, I heard on the radio about a tornado approaching. I looked in my rearview mirror and watched as an F3 tornado hit my office building, tore it all apart with everything that was in it. It was totally demolished. Well, the next morning, all of the hundreds of tenants from that building were scurrying around looking for new space, except for me. Over the sleepless night before, I had made a decision. This was my chance to get out. I turned and walked away from all that I had built over two and a half decades. I decided to begin clearing out. I continued on with writing law books and teaching in law school, but I was really still rather directionless, not knowing what my next steps would be. I was still wondering, and during all that wondering over the next seven years, my family and I moved to New York, really in large part to escape the Texas heat, where I lived most of my life, and to find something more exciting. I continued my writing and did my best to support my family on what I had earned previously. All the while, I was kind of drifting and wondering if something new would grab me. And because of many of life's ongoing complications at that time, we, we decided that we might change things by changing our geography. So we moved to New York City, but that move only deepened our troubles. Over the next couple of years, life's complications and sorrows really, really did not wane, but only became more numerous and intense. So many things happened that made me feel my life was simply falling apart. I was losing hope that I had the power to change anything that was going on. One day, when I was simply in a total fog, confused about life, struggling to find some meaning, I sat down on a dilapidated concrete stoop 
in the pouring rain and a wind that was blowing garbage all over Manhattan. About the biggest storm that had ever hit Manhattan in many, many years. I put my bowed head into my trembling hands and I simply wept. But then I felt a tap on the shoulder of my sopping wet shirt and a voice softly speaking, walk with me. When I raised my head, nobody was there. Not just nobody nearby, but nobody in the whole block. I decided to get up and walk. I did what that voice said, but that voice did not return in the days ahead. It was only about a month after that that I had a chance to join my church on a mission trip to New Orleans to help Hurricane Katrina victims in the Lower Ninth Ward, which was the hardest hit area of the city. While I was there, my group and I were assigned to what was called a mobile relief van, where we handed out supplies to people there, all of whom had their homes totally washed away by the hurricane, and they were still being housed in FEMA trailers on a football-sized asphalt field that had been constructed in the neighborhood. We set up a line for people who approached our van, and I began handing out small plastic grocery bags at the head of the line so that the people we, we served could carry, or carry their supplies on home. They would go through the lines to fill the bag with needed sundries and canned food, paper towels, dog food, everything that we could get for them that was available to us to hand out. But we ran out of the little grocery bags near the end of the day. We were there on a Walgreens parking lot. The sign of the Walgreens, which was in big lights, had been washed away in the hurricane. And there was a mud line nine feet up where the water had risen and stayed for weeks uh, in the Lower Ninth Ward. This little woman that approached was a very petite, slight African-American woman with one arm drooping to her side and one side of her face paralyzed. She looked at me and she asked me if someone could carry her items to her trailer since she could not carry them herself. I of course helped her, going through the line, gathering her items in my arms. And at the end of the line, I asked her which way to your home. She looked at me and said, walk with me. I swear it was the same voice I had heard on the New York stoop. I then walked with her asking her to tell me her story because I knew everyone had a story about the hurricane that they wanted to tell a story about where they were and what happened. She told me that she and her sister were at the home they had owned together with their four kids they had between them when the hurricane hit. It had been a home that was in her family for generations. They got out of the home and made it to the Superdome. But while they were there, Deborah was her name, she had a stroke. Despite her youth and her healthy appearance, my guess is she was only in her mid-40s when I met her. While in the Superdome, she could get no medical attention, so she was left with her disability and could no longer work. She had been a teacher. Their home was swept away by the water, but Deborah and her sister and the four kids had to move to this small FEMA trailer. As we approached it, she invited me in. 
I stacked her items on the counter. She turned to me and said, now Mike, what can I do for you? I'm sure my response was rather jumbled, but it went something like, you don't need to do anything for me, Deborah. You've shared your story. You've told me about your life. You've allowed me in to your home. She then looked around the trailer as if searching for something. And then she said, I know what I can do for you. And she reached with her one good arm under the counter and pulled out a large black plastic garbage bag and handed, handed it to me. It was full of small white plastic, plastic grocery bags. She said, I want to help you so that you can help the others in the neighborhood. At that moment, I had never seen such a selfless act. Her concern for her neighbors, causing her to find the one thing that all of them needed in that moment, a small pile of white plastic bags. So that walk with me moment gave me the inspiration to change my entire plan for my life. Deborah showed me so much care and hope for her neighbors in her own time of need after what she had suffered. I felt the realization that caring for others and self-giving is the most empowering thing that one can do. And I mean self-empowering. It can and it does erase fear and worry over other aspects of a life we sometimes feel afraid of. I knew I could do whatever I wanted with my life at that point. And that began the largest transformation I had made in my life. I decided to spread hope to others in the same way that Deborah had. I then went on to spend the next 10 years preparing for a life of ministry, studying and going to seminary, and I was ordained an Episcopal priest about two years ago. I learned during that experience that joy in my own life is always bountiful when I spend time and energy helping others through the storms of their lives. I spent quite a bit of time in those 10 to 12 years going places and doing things to be with others, to help see them through the storms of their lives. And I believe that whatever storms you have, whatever joy you may be without, can be changed by simply making a decision to give of yourself without any expectation of a payoff. So my mission in this podcast and in my book and in my journey through life is to help you find a way to create or increase your own joy. So I invite you to walk with me just as Deborah invited me. I take a large part of my thoughts about renewal and hope from my experience of doing mission work to help the poor. There is a lot that's going to be in my book about those experiences. And I tell my experiences by telling the stories about those whom I have encountered in my work. Some of those stories will be from people who I will have as guests on this podcast because I saw the joy in their life increase when they did the things that I had been doing and the things that I came to learn. 
as being important for me. So I tell those stories in the chapters of my book to demonstrate two things. And I tell those stories in this podcast to demonstrate the same two things. And that is that stories are current and meaningful and powerful ways to engage in introspection about ourselves. And second, that the hearing and understanding of those stories are really the windows through which we can have new hope for our own selves. If you have ever found yourself wandering, floundering, in what at times appears to feel like a meaningless life, or if you're in a life crisis, or simply if you're in a funk over what is happening now in your life, then these stories are for you. So, I want to ask one question. Why would you want to hear this message? For those of you who like to know this what's in it for me question, I have that for you too. Because one more thing that will make a big difference for you is this. There have been multiple studies in the business world that relate to my topic. Yes, even though I'm a priest who earns a small salary from my work, I understand the concept that we all need to earn money and acquire assets to be able to take care of ourselves and our loved ones. So my message to you is that you do not need to give up a successful career to discover what I discovered. It will cost you nothing other than the price of the book that I'm going to publish or the time that you spend reading it or the time that you spend listening to these stories on my podcast. But by the time you take my message to heart, I can demonstrate to you a truth reflected in these studies that your productivity and your ability to be of monetary and economic value to yourself and others are always enhanced by giving away your time and energy to those who need you. I know that sounds rather counterintuitive, but if you try it, I believe you will also find it to be true. The stories in this book about the mission work and the encountering of others unlike us or who we perceive to be unlike us demonstrate more than just the history of the people about whom I write. These stories are really about the history of humankind and about a universal truth that we are all much more alike than we sometimes realize. We share common needs and common dreams for health for our loved ones and for our world. We all take lessons from history and I want to give you a lesson from my history just to learn from your perspective that these stories may be about you as well. At some point in all of our lives we are met with the realization that we do not control everything in our little world. It is then that we can live with another realization that because we are not always in the driver's seat, we can relax and become content with only being happy passengers. Something has occurred to me over the course of my last 15 years of doing mission work to help those less advantaged than I. In encountering life 
and going to seminary and encountering those on the margins, what I've learned is that I never lose by giving. I always come out ahead. And so for the end of my story, I want to tell you that before we launch into the soul-enriching stories of other people, let me first dispel a thought that may now be in your mind. That is the thought that this book is going to be about the Bible, or about Christianity, or about theology. It is not, even though if you have read my credentials, you know I'm an Episcopal priest. But I write not solely from the perspective of being a priest. I write and I speak and I talk and I listen from the perspective of being a person who despite for 25 years being a successful trial lawyer realized that something was missing in my soul. This book touches the elements of the depths of our spirituality. This podcast will touch the elements of the depths of your spirituality. It is also about an inescapable truth, which is that as we go further in our life's journey, we discover that we are enough and that we have enough. And as a consequence, we have something bigger to share and to give. And when we share and we give, we always get more in return. We we learn that treasures, valuable ones, are often hidden. We learn that we often have to go on a search to find them. We learn that even when they're under our nose, we may not even see them because we're so busy with life. Treasure can be something totally different. Treasure is found in the soul and in the heart and in the spirit. And that's what this podcast is about. And that's what these stories in my book will be about. So I hope that you will join me and and listen to the stories of others as they speak them themselves. What we hear about stories from others often reflect our own thoughts and our own stories and can can tell us something about our own journeys. So please join me as we go forward. Listen in as often as you can. I'll try to make this as interesting for you as this topic is for me. God bless you all. Thank you for being here and I'll look forward to speaking with you next week. Sorry, I don't. I, I don't know what happened, but something happened, and that's okay. So let's get started again. I want to first talk about how you and I met uh, down in New Orleans about twelve years ago, I, I believe it was. On it's my second trip down to New Orleans. I know you had been there maybe more than I had before, um, but you were staying outside in a little shack out behind a, a very large dormitory kind of thing that my group from Grace Church was in. And my first encounter with you, I think, was where you knocked on the back door that morning to come in and pick up your lunch out of the refrigerator. And you didn't have a refrigerator. So I said, why don't you join us for breakfast? And you did. And we began talking. And 
from there, we decided to do some work together. And then we decided to do some work together again. And then we decided to do some work together again. And that's what we kept on doing. <laughs> and we did it for many, many years and resulted in a wonderful friendship. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have you as a friend. And I wanted to give that introduction and, and then start into some of your stories about how you have done what you've done to help build hope for other people who are less fortunate and marginalized and needy in, in the world. So why don't you start talking about that? Okay. Uh, well, that was my second trip also. So that okay. kind of, uh, it's uh, a neat thing that, that we're both had been there before, but maybe had some different experiences. Uh, I, I, I guess looking back, I've always been maybe kind of a convenient Christian to where, you know, I, I did all the right stuff, but I didn't, you know, I, I went to church on Sunday. I put stuff in the plate. You know, I, I, I prayed for people and, and that was truly about it. You know, I, I, but you know, there, there was something that was maybe missing or I was wondering if maybe this was, you know, is this all there is to it? And I, I was kind of looking for that, uh, I guess that spark to figure out what it was all about and maybe what my purpose was, uh, not only with that, but uh, in addition to just, you know, working and coming home to my family. And uh, I was at a, a fundraising dinner one night and a friend of a friend was talking about uh, their church going down to New Orleans. And the, as we started going back and forth, uh, she said, well, why don't you come with us uh, in a few months? And I said, sure. And uh, sure enough, a few months later, uh I was going to the airport with uh, 15 people that I really didn't know all that well. Uh, I packed up a duffel bag and really didn't know what to expect uh, and went down to New Orleans to uh, help out with the relief efforts for Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, in, in your story, you had talked about that, that one moment where you had walked with that, a uh, lady carrying her groceries and how she could give them back to you. I, I didn't have that one defining moment in my first trip there, but there were so many little moments that kind of made me realize by even the middle of that week that this was really a special place and this was a special week. And these were special people that, uh, that we were meeting uh, even before we picked up a hammer or did any work on, on a job site, we were having people uh, coming up to us and thanking us for being there and thanking us for doing the work that uh, uh, thousands of volunteers went down and did. Uh, we were walking to dinner one night and we were walking through a neighborhood and a lady called out from her front porch and she, she said, are you uh, volunteering here and we said we were and she said well come on up onto the porch and, and have some lemonade and and she served us all you know nice 
sweet, sweet lemonade and in big tall glasses. And, uh, you know, that was just kind of the, the outpouring of, uh, affection that we received from the people in New Orleans. And I thought, you know, this is, this is really neat. I mean, it, the mission work was hard. Uh, there were some days where it was just, it was tough. I mean, other days, you know, some days were okay. Uh, but the days of, you know, putting up sheetrock on a ceiling in 90 degree heat or working in an attic, uh, those days were hard. And to have the people from the neighborhood come out and, and just see the excitement in their eyes that, that somebody from somewhere around the country was coming to help somebody in their neighborhood. That was, you know, that was kind of the, the thing for me to see that over and over again, to think that this place is, is really neat. And the more we talked to these people and the more we told them about where we were from and why we were down there, it was more than just a thing where it was, you know, where they were excited, but in their eyes, you could see hope that, you know, my, my neighborhood has been, uh, you know, torn apart and it's been 18 months later and I'm still living in a trailer, but there's still people coming from all over the country to help my neighborhood get back to a, a place that's livable. And through those meetings time and time and time again with uh, the residents in New Orleans, uh, you could see that hope every time you talk to them. Uh, we shared meals with people. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time with people who had food insecurities or maybe didn't, you know, uh, or there was something wrong with the FEMA trailer or there, or they truly didn't have a place to live. And in all of the people that we met that first year, there was hope that, you know, things were going to get better and that, you know, it, it was taking a long time, but as they continued to see groups week after week, there was always that hope. Yeah. You use that word hope several times. And I want to, I want to delve into that a little bit. You know, the name of the book that I'm writing is called Renewal and Hope. And I talked about that some in my first and second episodes of this podcast and explained that 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 when we are in times in our own lives you and i others like us who want to help it's often that desire to help is often born from a need of of our own that that we want to fulfill and we can't always define what that need is but somehow providing hope to others helps fulfill our own need helps fulfill what we feel that we're lacking in our lives and that's what certain that certainly motivated me to go to New Orleans the first time and it's motivated me time and time and time again to do some of the other work that I've done and I, I want to see if you could address that how does that term renewal how do you what where do you feel the renewal by creating hope for other people I would think that the renewal part 
comes from not just going through an existence that it has that the the mission trips and and not just new orleans but the ones that we have shared since then also i come back from those trips invigorated and even on daily retreats or or weekend retreats, I come back to my family invigorated and I go back into work invigorated. Uh, I think that it has helped me in my, uh, just my overall well-being in that I'm more grounded and that I can really have a, a, a tough day or a, a tough stretch of, uh, you know, two or three weeks where it just doesn't seem like anything is is kind of clicking. Uh, but the renewal of doing something like this, uh, it it gets you refreshed or renewed, or there's a uh, it gives you kind of a new beginning where you can start over again and not worry about all the other things that are going on in life. You can kind of take uh, take a new step and uh, get back into a, a new routine. And through that, uh, I have found that my, uh, I, I guess my daily habits have changed too. And, you know, I, I know that it's maybe not a, the, the book is maybe not a retro or a, a a thing into truly like one faith or one religion but i think that it it has helped me in in my faith uh do the right things where the you know the prayer book would uh would sit on a coffee table and it was a nice place for it because you know you you could see it every day uh but you know i i never thought about saying morning prayer like ever I never thought about doing Compline. And now I'm involved with a group that does Compline every Sunday night. And it helps me uh, to be grounded. And it, it gives me that renewal so that I can start off the new week fresh. And some of those little habits were some of the things that I picked up in New Orleans uh, by you know, going and working with various people around the country. Uh, and that's one of the other nice things about it is I never went down with my parish. Uh, it, I always went with somebody else or somebody else that I had met, like like you and, and the people at Grace. Uh, and I became part of a community for a week that uh, after being in that, you know, being with you guys for no more than five minutes, I felt like I was family. Yeah. Well, we felt we felt like that too, um, and so let me address that. Um, you felt like you were family, and you made us feel like your family in both in both places that we've been. You know, two of the places that we've been as have been New Orleans and West Virginia, and West Virginia being McDowell County, the poorest county in the country, where we did some work for people that were certainly at least as, as uh, poorly off as those people in New Orleans. 
and they've been that way for generations. Um, and so sitting with a person on their porch in New Orleans and having lemonade sounds to me a little bit like my experience sitting uh, on a porch, dilapidated porch, by the way, um, with our friend Johnny down in, um, down in West Virginia who had had a stroke from working in the coal mines for so many years. Um, and we basically redid his whole house and he invited me to have an onion sandwich with him on his back porch. And I've never eaten an onion sandwich before, but it was really, really good. And it's like that lemonade you described. It's being really, really good. Now, if you ate, if you drank that lemonade anywhere else, it might not have been quite as tasty as it was down there because of the people that you were with. And I've never eaten an onion sandwich since, nor do I really care to, but that was a good one. <laughs> and I just, I just think there's a, uh, there's something about being with someone and eating with someone and, and seeing them eye to eye on their terms and opening up, you know, opening up that space with them where they can be themselves and you can be yourself. It's kind of, that's where that hope comes from. It's because we can say to ourselves, I can give this person something that they may not be able to get from any other human being in this place and this time. And that's, just so special. And I know that's the same Jew. I've heard you say it before. So it's hard to describe, but it's, but it's there. I'm glad you mentioned open up. Uh, there's one uh, thing in, in my trips to New Orleans that really kind of stood out. And that was working on a, uh, a home in the seventh ward, uh, the homeowner is named Mr. Hammond, and he had recently retired and had bought a, uh, a three flat, uh, and he was going to, he took his retirement money, bought the three apartments. He lived in one, and he was going to rent out the other two, and that, would, that was going to be his income. And he was doing well with that for the first couple of years, and then uh, Katrina hit. And when the floods came, uh, he put a milk carton up on top of his dresser and chiseled a hole in his ceiling and climbed up into his attic. And from there, he crawled to the front of the house and chiseled out a hole in his facade waiting for a boat. And he waited a day for a boat, and the water had had come up into the attic, uh, but still not it kind of leveled off right where the insulation came in uh but it it flooded all three of those (coughs) those apartments and even as we were working on his home either putting up sheetrock or i I remember I, i spent a whole day underneath the tub trying to to redo the plumbing to to get a the all of the clogs out of it one of the things we built in his house, in his closet, uh, was a trap door because he wanted to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again. But if it did, he'd have a way out. Uh, so we, we built uh, little steps for him on the side of, in the side of his closet. 
and put a, a, a trap door that was on a spring. So all he needed to do was push up on that, that attic door and, and he would have a way out. And when we showed that to him the first time, his eyes just lit up. Like he couldn't believe that, you know, his wish of, boy, I wish that I had a better way to get out, uh, that, that we had actually come up with something and, and within a, you know, a two-day period had come up with that. And, and those were some of the things that, that we were able to do in New Orleans where, uh, and it was even just as simple as picking out paint colors for bathrooms or uh, picking out uh, the linoleum that somebody wanted in their house. Uh, you know, we, we were able to do some of those little things to make it feel like they were coming home. Yeah. And, and I think that that, you know, that part where we were able to, uh, you know, I don't know how many people or how many homes we, our group worked on uh, overall, but I think it was close to 200. Uh, you know, we were able to bring 200 families home. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of hope in that. And there was, you know, th- there's a chance that they could start over. And uh, we're without the help of thousands of volunteers around the country and numerous, numerous organizations, I, these people had that chance. Right. And there's something, there's something to be about being just one small little seed in a large group effort that you know is ongoing. And uh, that's what I felt down in New Orleans, was whenever you look around and you drove around and you saw the work crews and you saw the people doing the things, you knew that you were one of many and that no matter how much you accomplished in one day, however small it was, it was made bigger by the fact that everyone else was doing it also. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, you plant one little seed Um, and somebody else is going to water it and make it grow and the sun's going to come out and it's going to turn into something much grander even though you don't get to see the final result you still know you're part of the final result Um, and that to me was a huge part of being able to go down there and take groups of people um, and and be with them and all of them to know that same thing and that was that was a community builder for everyone just having that one little piece of knowledge i i agree with that uh and a lot of that just kind of fed over into our west virginia experiences and it fed over into the weekend that we spent on staten island too that uh you know we we truly didn't know when we would go on any of these trips what was in store for us and i remember us asking time and time again about what are we going to have to do what do we need to do what do we need to bring what tools do we need to bring and even with all of our planning 80 percent of the time it would change anyway yeah and because our our group was i i guess flexible and had the uh i i guess because of our 
cohesiveness, we were able to adapt to those changes. Mm-hmm. And where somebody, you know, they, maybe they didn't have to wait on starting their renewal for another month until another group got down there. Uh, our group uh, who had some uh, fairly well-trained individuals in it was able to get a lot of things done in, in a short period of time. Right. Uh, but there were also other people that maybe weren't skilled in, in the trades that were really skilled and maybe just sitting down and listening to a story too. And I think sometimes just listening to somebody being able to tell their story lends to having just as much hope as uh, seeing somebody uh, build an escape hatch in the sea. Sure. Sure. And, and down in West Virginia on, on our second trip down there, Worked for Johnny and Diana, you know, in their home, and um, and we when we got there after a, after a day or two, we discovered that they didn't have any hot water in that home. They hadn't had a hot water heater in ever since they moved into that home two or three years earlier, and also that they hadn't had any hot water in their home in the prior home they'd been in, um, and they, as you remember, had their grandchildren. Uh, living there with them, who were, uh, one of them was Jaden, I think he was eight or nine years old, and Jaden's mom had died of an overdose uh, of Oxycontin or something, and so they were living with their grandparents, Jaden and Diana, and, and they had no hot water, and we discovered that, and so I asked Diana, I said, how come you didn't ask us to to replace your hot water heater, and she says, well, because we already had given you a pretty big list and we didn't want to be greedy. We didn't want to ask for too much. And so I said, we'll get you a new hot water heater. So we got our hot water heater and put it in. And the day that little Jaden came home from school and I picked him up and put him on the counter and let him put his hands under the hot water. Did, and he, he just screeched with joy and he went outside to where all the people were working, all of our worker work group. And he said, thank y'all for the hot water. <laughs> Everybody went, yeah, you're welcome. And, um, it's just, I mean, it's just moments like that. You know, you make a change in someone's life. And it really does sustain you. And it sustains you so that you want to go back, which is, which is that circuitous, endless cycle of hope and renewal and love and spirit that, that to me, sustains these kinds of missions, you know, into eternity, really. And there's something to be said about the the people that uh, that live in these places. Uh, a lot of you know, some something has happened to where their living conditions are not something that you would expect that Americans would be living in that that type of a, a condition. No matter how it was caused or or whatever, you would you would think that. You know, stuff like that wouldn't happen anymore, but it does. And you have a whole bunch of people from six, seven, eight hundred miles away that are going to, you know, charge through your house in a week. Uh, you know, you got to be a little bit leery of that, saying, you know, what are 
what are these people doing? You know, they're, they're strangers. Why, why are they here? And, you know, I, I know that this one person who I've, I've met a couple times says that all these people are okay, but you know, there, you have to build that relationship with them too, in order to, you know, you can't just go in and fix something there. There has to be that relationship uh, building that goes on so that you can develop that sense of trust. And, and I think probably the best example of that is when we were in Staten Island, uh, you know, there were about 12 of us that, uh, that went in that house that day and they had After all the hurricane Sandy, right? Yeah. Correct. Okay. I'm sorry. I, uh, they, they had all the insulation, they had all the drywall. It was ready to, to be put in. And it was just a husband and wife that were doing it by themselves because they didn't have the money uh, to hire a contractor to do it. And at least in New York City, a number of things need to be done uh, by licensed contractors uh, just because of the, the laws and the codes where maybe in McDowell County things were a little bit less stringent. Uh, but yet we still did stuff up to code. I, but you know, do hanging some sheetrock, uh, was one of the things that we could do. And I, I remember that we were just about to put a, our first piece of sheetrock on the wall. And my friend David was on one end and I was on the other and the homeowner came up to me and he, he took the the drill motor out of my hand and he looked at the tip to make sure that I was using a, a drywall bit. And a lot of times I don't, you know, I'll just use a number two bit, but if I'm doing work on somebody else's house, I usually do put in a drywall bit just because I I'm trying to take extra care because it is somebody else's house. And as soon as he saw that, that we were using the right tools and that we were taking the care that we were using the right tools, his whole attitude changed. And he, not only did he continue to work on his house that day, but he worked with us. And, and I think that, that that was maybe the turning point of, uh, for having him have hope that day that we were going to get a lot of stuff done. And I think we, uh, you know, except for maybe part of a room, we, we insulated and sheetrocked that whole house on a Saturday. And, and I think that that was maybe one of those defining moments, maybe not only in his life, but in mine, that, uh, that there was no language, you know, the language barrier became non-existent as soon as he looked at a tool and it met his criteria. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a trust there that uh, yeah. he knew that you were there to take care of him and his house. And that's what he was there to do, too, is to take care of himself and his house. And so you shared a common goal. Um, and, I, and that brings up a point in my mind, sharing the common goal. Um, one of the things that I like to say, I like to talk about, for people who have never done these kinds of mission trips or, you know, project service projects, 
that if you haven't and you want say you have a group from work and you want to so we want to put something like this together. We want to find out how to go and do one of these trips. Um, I think if you do that, people will find that it bonds their community together, their own working community in their own office or their own corporation or whatever it is, their own church, however they put this group together, that trust bond continues. And as an example of that, you're on this radio podcast with me today, because of that bond that we created doing the same things together and sharing that trust. And I would also point out that one of our cohorts who was on that very first trip to New Orleans, Melissa, has gone on many more trips with you, even in addition to the ones that you and I have done. So it's a bond. It's a community bond of sharing the common goal and working together and trusting each other and doing it. That, that, that just sort of fulfills a multiple purpose task, right? It's a multiple purpose task of, of not only doing the actual work, but also building multiple relationships from the same work. And it, it, it's, it's all fulfilling hope that, that transcends just the actual work that's going on. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And we have a, a, a number of, I, I guess, even though like most of our group would, would go back to New York and I would travel back to Michigan after our, our, our time somewhere else. I, but my friends and my parish would ask me about, you know, what I did or where did you go or what was your experience like? And in my life, that's led into a number of, of different things. Uh, shortly after that trip that where we met, I, my associate rector gave me a, a call and left me a message on my answering machine and said, hey, I've got a, a service thing that I'm working on and I'm wondering if you might be interested, give me a call. And I thought, hey, that's that's kind of neat. That's, you know, I, I can certainly, you know, volunteer for an afternoon or, or something at a church and, you know, boy, that'd make me feel good. I'm kind of glad that I was asked. And what that's turned into is about a, a 10 year, uh, pro or I, I guess a, a continuing project in youth ministry. Uh, I'm one of the youth directors at our church now, and the opportunities that working with our youth uh, have, you know, it not only do I, I get to work with some really neat kids that are smart and intelligent, but also have a lot of worries and concerns, and and they're going through all of their different types of hope and renewal also I uh, but I've also been able to share that mission experience with them I uh, so for the past number of years I uh, uh, a few of us other youth leaders in the diocese and I have taken a group of kids down into the inner city of Detroit where we're doing mission work and it's more you would think okay you're sending some high schoolers on a, a mission trip that that's nice. Uh, 
but the mission work that we're doing is is quite a bit like the mission work that we were doing in West Virginia. Uh, we're rebuilding decks. Uh, we are pulling fences. We are uh, tearing apart uh, old sheds. I, I mean, it, it's very physical labor, and it's not a uh, a thing where the kids are maybe painting a wall for two or three hours and then you know uh, take the afternoon off. Uh, and I've really enjoyed working with them and being able to teach them some of the construction skills that that they need. And it's been able it's been neat to also see them being able to accomplish something. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's you know, putting together a fence is, is nice and it looks good at the end and it's an accomplishment, but when you have six or seven teenagers do that, that accomplishment uh, you know, gives them some hope that they can, you know, that they don't have to rely on an adult for everything. Yeah. Or that the homeowner can say, Hey, look what look what these teenagers uh did for me. You know, isn't this neat? And because of uh, the COVID-19 situation, we haven't been able to go on mission trips in our diocese this year. Uh, so one of the things uh, our youth group did was uh, we started a, a campaign to where we were calling friends and neighbors to provide a uh, fresh fruits and vegetables to some uh, people in a, a food insecure area of Detroit uh, where the lead levels were were higher than normal and our youth group raised over $1,500 uh, so that uh, 17 families could have fresh fruit and vegetables six times throughout the summer. Oh, wow. So, so our mission has been, uh, it's been altered a bit this year, but we still have that mission and we've we've adapted to being able to try something new or, you know, we're still working with people and maybe we don't have that, uh, that handshake and uh, looking at somebody and, and kind of the getting to know you part of it. Yeah. Uh, but there's still something where we can show that we know that there's somebody in our community that could use a helping hand and that, uh, that somebody on the other end might might be able to take that as just one step into uh, either leading a uh, you know have, having a, a stronger way of feeling or being able to uh, get healthier or you know whatever their uh, whatever their need is. Uh, and and that's some of the the neat things that uh, because of the the new you know the the stories of mission, it, it's kind of led me into youth ministry, which has been able to lead me into all sorts of different things. Where uh, you know teaching about the mission and working with uh, our teens, I, I see that 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 mission aspect is going to continue. Uh, for years and years. Yeah. Well, just so just so people listening to this know, you live in Michigan. You live in Ann Arbor, right? 
Yes. And, uh, and Detroit is how far away from you? Uh, it's a, Detroit's about 30 miles east okay. of us. So the people that you're working for in Detroit are, you know, removed from you in a lot of different ways, but that gap gets filled and that gap gets closed by the, by the work that you do in Detroit and the work that, the work that you do for them. Um, so I wanted to say one more thing and, and then um, I'll let you close with, any, with anything that you have. But one of the things that's really has really enriched me is the relationship that I've had with you. Um, and you're coming to stay at my house with, um, with Marianne and your daughters and, and going and doing the work that we did during all that time. And, and then having you come all the way from Michigan to New York for my ordination a couple of years ago was just very, very special. And I would just tell people who are listening to this that those are the kind of bonds that one creates when you do this kind of work together. Um, so there's a lot of benefit, not benefit just going one way, it's benefit going all the different ways. And I'm just, I, I feel very blessed to have had this relationship with you. So um, thank you for that. And, um, and thank you for being here with me to share it with everybody else. And you, are my first guest on my podcast. And so I want everybody to know that. And um, I'll be posting this probably uh, on Thursday night so everybody can listen to it. And um, I may just tell everybody to call Larry and have a chat someday. <laughs> that sounds great. I uh, The phone's on 24-7. Okay. Uh, but one of the... One of the neat things that that came out of New Orleans uh, was the friendship that that you and I developed. And I'm not sure why it took us all week that first year to do it, but uh, that that last day that we were there when we got our picture taken in front of the house is one of the pictures that uh, means so much to me. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, you know, why the two of us hit it off and why maybe I didn't hit it off with somebody else in the house. Uh, but we developed that bond immediately yeah. and it worked so that I, I truly felt like I was part of that group uh, right away. And the friendships that I've made from that group uh, from Melissa and Linda and Matt, people that I still talk to on at least a monthly basis, it's, I, I feel very, very fortunate that that was the week that, uh, that was open for me to come down. That was the week that, uh, that little cottage was available. And, you know, all of, all of this has happened because of a scheduling thing where, it you know that was the best week to go uh so i'm very thankful for that well i am too larry and um i really appreciate your being here and I, i'm i'm really anxious for other people to hear your stories because the spreading of the stories are the are the things that you know make all of this special and and bring bring other people along so i really appreciate your spending time with me it's always great to talk to you and um 
we'll close for now and uh, let's let you and I uh, touch base not too long away, okay? That sounds great. God bless. Thank you, Mike. Take care. We'll see you later. Bye bye. Okay, sorry, I don't. Know. I I don't know what happened, but something happened, and yeah. that's okay. So let's get started again. I want to first talk about how you and I met uh, down in New Orleans about twelve years ago. I, I believe it was on it was my second trip down to New Orleans. I know you had been there maybe more than I had before, um, but you were staying outside in a little shack out behind a, a very large dormitory kind of thing that my group from Grace Church was in, and my first encounter with you, I think, was where you knocked on the back door that morning to come in and pick up your lunch out of the refrigerator, and you didn't have a refrigerator, so I said, why don't you join us for breakfast, and you did, and we began talking, and from there, we decided to do some work together, and then we decided to do some work together again, and then we decided to do some work together again, and that's what we kept on doing. (laughs) And we did it for many, many years, and resulted in a wonderful friendship. So, I'm uh, I'm I'm blessed to have you as a friend, and I wanted to give that introduction and and then start into some of your stories about how you have done what you've done to help build hope for other people who are less fortunate and marginalized and needy in in the world. So, why don't you start talking about that? Okay. Uh, well, that was my second trip also. So that kind of, uh, it's, uh, a neat thing that uh, we're both had been there before, but maybe had some different experiences. Uh, I, I, I guess looking back, I've always been maybe kind of a convenient Christian to where, you know, I, I did all the right stuff. But I didn't, you know, I, I went to church on Sunday. I put stuff in the plate. You know, I, I, I prayed for people. And, and that was truly about it. You know, I, I, but, you know, there, there was something that was maybe missing. Or I was wondering if maybe this was, you know, is this all there is to it? And I, I was kind of looking for that, uh, I guess, that spark to figure out what it was all about and maybe what my purpose was, uh, not only with that, but, uh, in addition to just, you know, working and coming home to my family. And, I I was at a, a fundraising dinner one night and a friend of a friend was talking about, uh, their church going down to new Orleans and the, as we started going back and forth, uh, she said, well, why don't you come with us uh, in a few months? And I said, sure. And uh, sure enough, a few months later, uh, I was going to the airport with uh, 15 people that I really didn't know all that well. Uh, I packed up a duffel bag and really didn't know what to expect uh, and went down to New Orleans to uh, help out with the relief efforts for Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, in, in your story, you had talked about that, that one moment where you had walked with that uh, lady carrying her groceries and how she could give them back to you. I, I didn't have that one defining moment in my first trip there. 
but there were so many little moments that kind of made me realize by even the middle of that week that this was really a special place and this was a special week. And these were special people that, uh, that we were meeting. Uh, even before we picked up a hammer or did any work on, on a job site, we were having people uh, coming up to us and thanking us for being there and thanking us for doing the work that uh, uh, thousands of volunteers went down and did. Uh, we were walking to dinner one night and we were walking through a neighborhood and a lady called out from her front porch and she, she said, are you uh, volunteering here? And we said we were, and she said, well, come on up onto the porch and, and have some lemonade. And, and she served us all, you know, nice, sweet, sweet lemonade and in big tall glasses. And, uh, you know, that was just kind of the, the outpouring of uh, affection that we received from the people in New Orleans. And I thought, you know, this is, this is really neat. I mean, it, the mission work was hard. Uh, there were some days where it was just, it was tough. I mean, other days, you know, some days were okay. Uh, but the days of, you know, putting up sheetrock on a ceiling in 90 degree heat or working in an attic, uh, those days were hard. And to have the people from the neighborhood come out and, and just see the excitement in their eyes that, that somebody from somewhere around the country was coming to help somebody in their neighborhood. That was, you know, that was kind of the, the thing for me to see that over and over again, to think that this place is, is really neat. And the more we talked to these people and the more we told them about where we were from and why we were down there, it was more than just a thing where it was, you know, where they were excited, but in their eyes, you could see hope that, you know, my, my neighborhood has been, uh, you know, torn apart and it's been 18 months later and I'm still living in a trailer, but there's still people coming from all over the country to help my neighborhood get back to a, a place that's livable. And through those meetings time and time and time again with uh, the residents in New Orleans, uh, you could see that hope every time you talk to them. Uh, we shared meals with people. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time with people who had food insecurities or maybe didn't, you know, uh, or there was something wrong with the FEMA trailer, or there, or they truly didn't have a place to live. And in all of the people that we met that first year, there was hope that you know things were going to get better, and that you know it, it was taking a long time. But as they continued to see groups week after week, there was always that hope. Yeah, you use that word hope several times, and I want to. I want to delve into that a little bit. You know, the name of the book that I'm writing is called Renewal and Hope. And I talked about that some in my first and second episodes of this podcast. 
and explained it that that when we are in times in our own lives, you and I, others like us who want to help, it's often that desire to help is often born from a need of, of our own that, that we want to fulfill. And we can't always define what that need is, but somehow providing hope to others helps fulfill our own need, helps fulfill what we feel that we're lacking in our lives. And that's what certain, that certainly motivated me to go to New Orleans the first time. And it's motivated me time and time and time again to do some of the other work that I've done. And I, I want to see if you could address that. How does that term renewal, how do you, what, where do you feel the renewal by creating hope for other people? I would think that the renewal part comes from not just going through an existence that it has that the the mission trips and and not just new orleans but the ones that we have shared since then also i come back from those trips invigorated and even on daily retreats or or weekend retreats, I come back to my family invigorated and I go back into work invigorated. Uh, I think that it has helped me in my, uh, just my overall well-being in that I'm more grounded and that I can really have a a, a tough day or a, a tough stretch of uh you know, two or three weeks where it just doesn't seem like anything is is kind of clicking. Uh, but the renewal of doing something like this, uh, it it gets you refreshed or renewed, or there's a uh, it gives you kind of a new beginning where you can start over again and not worry about all the other things that are going on in life. You can kind of take uh, take a new step and uh, get back into a, a new routine. And through that, uh, I have found that my, uh, I guess my daily habits have changed too. And, you know, I, I know that it's maybe not a, the, the book is maybe not a retro or a, a a thing into truly like one faith or one religion but i think that it it has helped me in in my faith uh do the right things where the you know the prayer book would uh would sit on a coffee table and it was a nice place for it because you know you you could see it every day uh but you know i i never thought about saying morning prayer like ever I never thought about doing Compline. And now I'm involved with a group that does Compline every Sunday night. And it helps me uh, to be grounded. And it, it gives me that renewal so that I can start off the new week fresh. And some of those little habits were some of the things that I picked up in New Orleans uh, by you know, going and working with various people around the country. Uh, and that's one of the other nice things about it is I never went down with my parish. 
uh, it, I always went with somebody else or somebody else that I had met, like, like you and, and the people at Grace. Uh, and I became part of a community for a week that uh, after being in that, you know, being with you guys for no more than five minutes, I felt like I was family. Yeah. Well, we felt, we felt like that too. Um, and so let me address that. Um, you felt like you were family and you made us feel like your family in both, in both places that we've been, you know, two of the places that we've been as have been New Orleans and West Virginia and West Virginia being McDowell County, the poorest County in the country where we did some work for people that were at, certainly at least as, as uh, poorly off as those people in New Orleans. And they've been that way for generations. Um, and so sitting with a person on their porch in New Orleans and having lemonade sounds to me a little bit like my experience sitting uh, on a porch, dilapidated porch, by the way, um, with our friend Johnny down in um, down in West Virginia, who had had a stroke from working in the coal mines for so many years. Um, and we basically redid his whole house. And he invited me to have an onion sandwich with him on his back porch. And I've never eaten an onion sandwich before, but it was really, really good. And it's like that lemonade you described. It's being really, really good. Now, if you, ate, if you drank that lemonade anywhere else, it might not have been quite as tasty as it was down there because of the people that you were with. And I've never eaten an onion sandwich since, nor do I really care to, but that was a good one. <laughs> and I just, I just think there's, a, uh, there's something about being with someone and eating with someone and, and seeing them eye to eye on their terms and opening up, you know, opening up that space with them where they can be themselves and you can be yourself. It's kind of, that's where that hope comes from. It's because we can say to ourselves, I can give this person something that they may not be able to get from any other human being in this place and this time. And that's just so special. And I know that's the same Jew. I've heard you say it before. So it's hard to describe, but it's, but it's there. I'm glad you mentioned open up. Uh, there's one uh, thing in, in my trips to New Orleans that really kind of stood out. And that was working on a, uh, a home in the seventh ward. Uh, the homeowner is named Mr. Hammond and he had recently retired and had bought a, uh, a three flat. Uh, and he was going to, he took his retirement money, bought the three apartments. He lived in one and he was going to rent out the other two. And that would, that was going to be his income. And he was doing well with that for the first couple of years. And then uh, Katrina hit. And when the floods came, uh, he put a milk carton up on top of his dresser and chiseled a hole in his ceiling and climbed up into his attic. And from there, he crawled to the front of the house and chiseled out a hole in his facade waiting for a boat and he waited a day for a boat and the water had had come up into the attic 
uh, but still not, you know, it kind of leveled off right where the insulation came in. Uh, but it, it flooded all three of those, <coughs> those apartments. And even as we were working on his home, either putting up sheetrock or I, I remember I, I spent a whole day underneath the tub trying to, to redo the plumbing to, to get a, the, all of the clogs out of it. One of the things we built in his house, in his closet, uh, was a trap door because he wanted to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again. But if it did, he'd have a way out. Uh, so we, we built uh, little steps for him on the side of, in the side of his closet and put a, a, a trap door that was on a spring. So all he needed to do was push up on that, that attic door and, and he would have a way out. And when we showed that to him the first time, his eyes just lit up. Like he couldn't believe that, you know, his wish of, boy, I wish that I had a better way to get out, uh, that, that we had actually come up with something. And, and within a, you know, a two-day period had come up with that. And, and those were some of the things that, that we were able to do in New Orleans where, uh, and it was even just as simple as picking out paint colors for bathrooms or uh, picking out uh, the linoleum that somebody wanted in their house. Uh, you know, we, we were able to do some of those little things to make it feel like they were coming home. Yeah. And, and I think that that, you know, that part where we were able to, uh, you know, I don't know how many people or how many homes we, our group worked on uh, overall, but I think it was close to 200. Uh, you know, we were able to bring 200 families home. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of hope in that. And there was, you know, th- there's a chance that they could start over. And uh, we're without the help of thousands of volunteers around the country and numerous, numerous organizations, I, these people had that chance. Right. And there's something, there's something to be about being just one small little seed in a large group effort that you know is ongoing. And uh, that's what I felt down in New Orleans was whenever you look around and you drove around and you saw the work crews and you saw the people doing the things, you knew that you were one of many and that no matter how much you accomplished in one day, however small it was, it was made bigger by the fact that everyone else was doing it also. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, you plant one little seed um, and somebody else is going to water it and make it grow and the sun's going to come out and it's going to turn into something much grander. Even though you don't get to see the final result, you still know you're part of the final result. Um, and that to me was a huge part of being able to go down there and take groups of people um, and and be with them and all of them to know that same thing. And that was, that was a community builder for everyone, just having that one little piece of knowledge i i agree with that uh and a lot of that 
just kind of fed over into our West Virginia experiences. And it fed over into the weekend that we spent on Staten Island too, that, uh, you know, we, we truly didn't know when we would go on any of these trips, what was in store for us. And I remember us asking time and time again about what are we going to have to do? What do we need to do? What do we need to bring? What tools do we need to bring? And even with all of our planning, 80% of the time it would change anyway. Yeah. And because our, our group was, I, I guess, flexible and had the, uh, I, I guess because of our cohesiveness, we were able to adapt to those changes. Mm-hmm. And where somebody, you know, they, maybe they didn't have to wait on starting their renewal for another month until another group got down there. Uh, our group uh, who had some uh, fairly well-trained individuals in it was able to get a lot of things done in, in a short period of time. Right. Uh, but there were also other people that maybe weren't skilled in, in the trades that were really skilled and maybe just sitting down and listening to a story too. And I think sometimes just listening to somebody being able to tell their story lends to having just as much hope as uh, seeing somebody uh, build an escape hatch in the sea. Sure. Sure. And, and down in West Virginia on, on our second trip down there, Worked for Johnny and Diana, you know, in their home, and um, and we when we got there after a, after a day or two, we discovered that they didn't have any hot water in that home. They hadn't had a hot water heater in ever since they moved into that home two or three years earlier, and also that they hadn't had any hot water in their home in the prior home they'd been in, um, and they, as you remember, had their grandchildren. Uh, living there with them, who were, uh, one of them was Jaden, I think he was eight or nine years old, and Jaden's mom had died of an overdose uh, of Oxycontin or something, and so they were living with their grandparents, Jaden and Diana, and, and they had no hot water, and we discovered that, and so I asked Diana, I said, how come you didn't ask us to to replace your hot water heater, and she says, well, because we already had given you a pretty big list and we didn't want to be greedy. We didn't want to ask for too much. And so I said, we'll get you a new hot water heater. So we got our hot water heater and put it in. And the day that little Jaden came home from school and I picked him up and put him on the counter and let him put his hands under the hot water. Did, and he, he just screeched with joy and he went outside to where all the people were working, all of our worker work group. And he said, thank y'all for the hot water. <laughs> Everybody went, yeah, you're welcome. And, um, it's just, I mean, it's just moments like that. You know, you make a change in someone's life. And it really does sustain you. And it sustains you so that you want to go back, which is, which is that circuitous, endless cycle of hope and renewal and love and spirit that, that, to me, sustains these kinds of missions. 
you know, into eternity, really. And there's something to be said about the the people that uh, that live in these places. I uh, a lot of you know some something has happened to where their living conditions are not something that you would expect that Americans would be living in that that type of a, a condition, no matter how it was caused or or whatever. You would you would think that. You know, stuff like that wouldn't happen anymore, but it does. And you have a whole bunch of people from six, seven, eight hundred miles away that are going to, you know, charge through your house in a week. Uh, you know, you got to be a little bit leery of that. Saying, you know, what are what are these people doing? You know, they're they're strangers. Why why are they here? And, you know, I, I know that this one person who I've I've met a couple times says that all these people are okay. But you know, there you have to build that relationship with them too, in order to you know you can't just go in and fix something. There there has to be that relationship uh, building that goes on, so that you can develop that sense of trust. And and I think probably the best example of that is when we were in Staten Island. Uh, you know, there were about twelve of us that. Uh, that went in that house that day, and they had After all the Hurricane Sandy, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. I'm sorry. I uh, they they had all the insulation, they had all the drywall. It was ready to to be put in, and it was just a husband and wife that were doing it by themselves because they didn't have the money uh, to hire a contractor to do it, and at least in New York city, a number of things need to be done, uh, by licensed contractors, uh, just because of the, the laws and the codes where maybe in McDowell County, things were a little bit less stringent. Uh, but yet we still did stuff up to code. I, uh, but you know, do hanging some sheetrock, uh, was one of the things that we could do. And I, I remember that we were just about to put a, our first piece of sheetrock on the wall. And my friend David was on one end and I was on the other. And the homeowner came up to me and he, he took the, the drill motor out of my hand. And he looked at the tip to make sure that I was using a, a drywall bit. And a lot of times I don't. You know, I'll just use a number two bit, but if I'm doing work on somebody else's house, I usually do put in a drywall bit just because I, I'm trying to take extra care because it is somebody else's house. And as soon as he saw that, that we were using the right tools and that we were taking the care that we were using the right tools, his whole attitude changed. And he not only did he continue to work on his house that day, but he worked with us. And, and I think that, that that was maybe the turning point of uh, for having him have hope that day that we were going to get a lot of stuff done. And I think we, uh, you know, except for maybe part of a room, we, we insulated and sheetrocked that whole house on a Saturday. Yeah. 
And, and I think that that was maybe one of those defining moments, maybe not only in his life, but in mine, that, uh, that there was no language, you know, the language barrier became non-existent as soon as he looked at a tool and it met his criteria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a trust there that uh, yeah. he knew that you were there to take care of him and his house. And that's what he was there to do too, is to take care of himself and his house. And so you shared a common goal. Um, and I, and that brings up a point in my mind, sharing the common goal. Um, one of the things that I like to say, I like to talk about for people who have never done these kinds of mission trips or, you know, project service projects that if you haven't and you want say you have a group from work and you want to say, we want to put something like this together. We want to find out how to go and do one of these trips. Um, I think if you do that, people will find that it bonds their community together, their own working community in their own office or their own corporation or whatever it is, their own church, however they put this group together, that trust bond continues. And as an example of that, you're on this radio podcast with me today because of that bond that we created doing the same things together and sharing that trust. And I would also point out that one of our cohorts who was on that very first trip to New Orleans, Melissa, has gone on many more trips with you, even in addition to the ones that you and I have done. So it's a bond, it's a community bond of sharing the common goal and working together and trusting each other and doing it that, that, that just sort of fulfills a multiple purpose task, right? It's a multiple purpose task of, of not only doing the actual work, but also building multiple relationships from the same work. And it, it, it's, it's all fulfilling hope that, that transcends just the actual work that's going on. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And we have a, a, a number of, I, I guess, even though like most of our group would, would go back to New York and I would travel back to Michigan after our, our, our time somewhere else. I, but my friends and my parish would ask me about, you know, what I did or where did you go or what was your experience like? And in my life, that's led into a number of, of different things. Uh, shortly after that trip that where we met, I, my associate rector gave me a, a call and left me a message on my answering machine and said, Hey, I've got a, a service thing that I'm working on and I'm wondering if you might be interested, give me a call. And I thought, Hey, that's, that's kind of neat. That's, you know, I, I can certainly, you know, volunteer for an afternoon or, or something at a church and, you know, boy, that'd make me feel good. I'm kind of glad that I was asked. And what that's turned into is about a, a 10 year, uh, Pro, or I, I guess a, a continuing project in youth ministry. Uh, I'm one of the youth directors at our church now, and the opportunities that working with our youth 
I have, you know, it, not only do I, I get to work with some really neat kids that are smart and intelligent, but also have a lot of worries and concerns and, and they're going through all of their different types of hope and renewal also. I, but I've also been able to share that mission experience with them. I, so for the past number of years, I, uh, a few of us other youth leaders in the diocese and I have taken a group of kids down into the inner city of Detroit where we're doing mission work. And it's more, you would think, okay, you're sending some high schoolers on a, a mission trip. That That's nice. I, but the mission work that we're doing is is quite a bit like the mission work that we were doing in West Virginia. Uh, we're rebuilding decks. Uh, we are pulling fences. We are uh, tearing apart uh, old sheds. I, I mean, it, it's very physical labor, and it's not a uh, a thing where the kids are maybe painting a wall for two or three hours and then you know uh, take the afternoon off. I uh, and I've really enjoyed working with them and being able to teach them some of the construction skills that, that they need. And it's been able, it's been neat to also see them being able to accomplish something. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, you know, putting together a fence is, is nice and it looks good at the end and it's an accomplishment. But when you have six or seven teenagers do that, that accomplishment uh, you know, gives them some hope that they can, you know, that they don't have to rely on an adult for everything. Yeah. Or that the homeowner can say, Hey, look what, look what these teenagers, uh, did for me. You know, isn't this neat? And because of, uh, the COVID-19 situation, we haven't been able to go on mission trips in our diocese this year. Uh, so one of the things, uh, our youth group did was uh, we started a a campaign to where we were calling friends and neighbors to provide a uh, fresh fruits and vegetables to some uh, people in a a food insecure area of Detroit uh, where the lead levels were were higher than normal. And our youth group raised over $1,500 uh, so that uh, 17 families could have fresh fruit and vegetables six times throughout the summer. Oh, wow. So, so our mission has been, uh, it's been altered a bit this year, but we still have that mission. And we've, we've adapted to being able to try something new or, you know, we're still working with people and maybe we don't have that, uh, that handshake and uh, looking at somebody and, and kind of the getting to know you part of it. Yeah. Uh, but there's still something where we can show that we know that there's somebody in our community that could use a helping hand and that, uh, that somebody on the other end might, might be able to take that as just one step into uh either leading a uh, 
you know, have, having a, a stronger way of feeling or being able to uh, get healthier or, you know, whatever their, uh, whatever their need is. Uh, and, and that's some of the, the neat things that uh, because of the, the new, you know, the, the stories of mission, it's kind of led me into youth ministry, which has been able to lead me into all sorts of different things where, uh, you know, teaching about the mission and working with uh, our teens, I, I see that that, that mission aspect is going to continue uh, for years and years. Yeah. Well, just so, just so people listening to this know, you live in Michigan, you live in Ann Arbor, right? And, yes. uh, and Detroit is how far away from you? Uh, it's a, Detroit's about 30 miles east okay. of us. So the people that you're working for in Detroit are, you know, removed from you in a lot of different ways, but that gap gets filled and that gap gets closed by the, by the work that you do in Detroit and the work that, the work that you do for them. Um, so, I wanted to say one more thing, and, and then um, I'll let you close with, any, with anything that you have. But one of the things that's really has really enriched me is the relationship that I've had with you. Um, and you're coming to stay at my house with um, with Marianne and your daughters, and and going and doing the work that we did during all that time, and and then having you come all the way from Michigan to New York for my ordination a couple of years ago was just very, very special. And I would just tell people who are listening to this that those are the kind of bonds that one creates when you do this kind of work together. Um, So there's a lot of benefit, not benefit just going one way, it's benefit going all the different ways. And I'm just, I I feel very blessed to have had this relationship with you. So. Um, thank you for that, and um, and thank you for being here with me to share it with everybody else. And you are my first guest on my podcast, and so I want everybody to know that. And um, I'll be posting this probably uh, on Thursday night, so everybody can listen to it. And um, I may just tell everybody to call Larry and have a chat someday. <laughs> that sounds great. I. <laughs> Uh, the phone's on twenty four seven. Okay. Uh, but one of the one of the neat things that that came out of New Orleans uh, was the friendship that that you and I developed. And I'm not sure why it took us all week that first year to do it, but uh, that <laughs> that last day that we were there when we got our picture taken in front of the house is one of the pictures that. Uh, means so much to me you know i'm i'm not exactly sure you know why the two of us hit it off and why maybe i didn't hit it off with somebody else in the house i but we developed that bond immediately and it worked so that i i truly felt like i was part of that group uh right away and the friendships that i've made from that group uh, from Melissa and Linda and Matt, people that I still talk to on at least a monthly basis. 
it's I I feel very very fortunate that that was the week that I that was open for me to come down. That was the week that uh, that little cottage was available, and you know all of all of this has happened because of a scheduling thing where it you know that was the best week to go. Uh, so I'm very thankful for that. Well, I am too, Larry, and uh, I really appreciate your being here, and I, I'm I'm really anxious for other people to hear your stories because the spreading of the stories are the are the things that you know, make all of this special and, and bring, bring other people along. So I really appreciate your spending time with me. It's always great to talk to you and um, we'll close for now. And uh, let's let you and I uh, touch base not too long away. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you, Mike. Take care. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.